0: From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine.
1: I just, the feeling of sitting down at the sushi bar and then eating two by two, and is the relationship with uh, the, the sushi master, it was like my ultimate eating experience.
0: Hi, you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. I'm your host, Brian Hogan Stewart. Now you just heard from Nancy Singleton Hachishu, reading from her latest cookbook, Japan the Cookbook. We're talking with Nancy today about this latest work, a massive volume with more than 400 recipes, exploring the culinary history of Japan, specifically in the 1970s and 1980s. Now, this is a huge, literally, undertaking, and Nancy's well-versed in the foods and customs of the island nation. She's a native Californian, but Nancy has lived in Japan since the 1980s, and today she lives in an 85-year-old traditional Japanese farmhouse with her husband, an organic farmer. Now, she's served as the leader of the local food convivium for more than a decade, and Nancy's also really active and a really leading voice in the artisanal food movement uh, across Japan. Before this book, Nancy actually wrote two other noteworthy English books on Japanese cooking, both which I highly recommend. The first is Japanese farm food, uh, and the second is Preserving the Japanese Way, this really exciting and great uh, look into the art of Japanese pickling. And last year, Nancy also published a Japanese-language cookbook, Nancy-san's Working Kitchen. As we'll discuss, Nancy spent a lot of time researching this latest book, traveling all over Japan, meeting with home cooks and chefs. And we're presented with an encyclopedic look at some of Japan's most well-known dishes. Ramen, yakitori, and also some that might be more surprising, like this recipe, which is a tongue twister. The shisho wrapped shishito peppers. Now we sat down with Nancy at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen to talk cookbooks. Nancy, they say you should not judge a book by its cover, um, <laughs> but we look at Japan the cookbook in this beautiful cover. I mean, it's it's gorgeous. Uh, meant to that was all
1: fighting. They they do an amazing job with that. Yes, yeah.
0: and for for listeners, obviously we're audio only here uh, who can't see the cover. It's meant to evoke beautiful bamboo. Is that right?
1: Right. They they were going for a bamboo box type of idea. Uh huh.
0: Mm-hmm. It's lovely. Um, so the book is Japan the Cookbook, um, mm-hmm. just released. And this is a little bit different than some of your other cookbooks in that it's a little less thematic, right? It's a little mm-hmm. bit more of a, a broad look at mm-hmm. Japan's culinary traditions. How did you approach a book like that of this magnitude?
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, I didn't want to repeat what I had in other books. But on the other hand, Fiden's looking for, this is a Bible series, mm. and we're shooting for 350 to 400 recipes. It was not one of the thousand recipe books that they do do. Right. And, um, I'm telling you, 400 was
0: plenty. Yes. It was a big <laughs> it's a job. lot of recipes. Yeah. yeah.
1: At first, I, 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 um, separated Japan by areas where I knew, uh, chef and I had um, a connection and I could go immediately to gather food stories and food and recipes. And so I just started traveling over the mm-hmm. course of uh, maybe uh, what ended up to be about a year and a half. And each book, you have ideas when you go in and then actually the book takes shape sometimes in a different way. And and how you organize the book is a, um, a huge factor. But then also in this case, there was so much material, the material shaped the book There was a body of, all of that travel material ended up not being in the book. And we'll go into a different book. And this book became, like I said, it's a moment in time in the seventies, eighties. And so, yes, it was a little, it was quite hard when. All of that material that I had traveled around for and photographed at great expense. Yeah. That it wasn't, you, wasn't going to be ending up in the book. Sure. But the repurposing of the book made it a better book. And so, you know, everything happens for a reason. Right. So. It
0: really came together organically in a right. sense. Yeah. So that yeah. was great. Yeah. Good
1: things come from
0: right and and what drew you to japan you've been there 30 years now 30 years
1: well i was working in san francisco after after stanford and i was um working in the bar and restaurant business and it was a lot of fun um went out to eat a lot on the days off and right earned money spent money Uh, it was not it was not (laughs) the most healthy lifestyle in some ways because there's a lot of late nights we were working late but um early on early 80s i i, I had had sushi before uh-huh. um but i went to my first official sushi bar it was called ondanoshiro no okay and um i just the feeling of sitting down at the sushi bar and then eating two by two and this the relationship with the, the the sushi master and i i like raw food i like cooked right. food too but it was like my ultimate eating experience and and in, in taste feeling, relationship. I don't like to eat alone often. Um, uh-huh. And so I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to get my life together. get out <laughs> of this restaurant business. And then I'm, because I was working on the floor, by the way. And okay. then I, I said, uh, and I'd always, you know, in, in those days we were all going to be lawyers or, right. or go to business school and I'm not interested in business school. So, okay, I'm going to get a JD. I'm going to... And I go to law school, but by the way, whenever I mean, when at Stanford, I took languages because I'm into languages. So my next language is going to be Japanese, and that'll make sense for the law because I could do labor law, maybe. Okay, I don't know. I made up this whole scenario, (laughs) right? And so then I said, okay, so I should go back. I should go to Japan for a year to learn Japanese, Uh like I did uh to learn French in Belgium. Well that, you know, doesn't really happen that way when you're teaching English. But and I also realized quite soon on that I would need a little bit I would need certainly another year. And I uh you know, you apply I arrived in the summer and I was applying to graduate schools in the fall and I also had met my husband to be and I thought Mm -hmm. I needed to give a little more time. So it was not necessarily that I was a gaga for Japan. It was just the situation meant that I should stay a little bit longer. And then I chose to marry rather than I chose the country. But I can't imagine living in the U.S. anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's it's our life and it's, you know, everywhere has ups and downs. And I I just, I feel truly very comfortable there.
0: Right. Well, and after 30 years, I would imagine. Yeah. But even after living there for 30 years, being able to travel around the country like you did for this book, I imagine must have been a, a huge learning experience still for you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I found things that I had never known about. And I went mainly to the country. And I I relate well with artisanal producers and country people. I mean, these are, these are not my people, but they're the people that I most relate with. Sure. Because I grew up in Atherton, you know, my parents were kind of beatnik type. So I I guess it it
0: works. Right. (laughs) Yes, totally. So... You said you collect cookbooks, and uh-huh. and you're a, a big cookbook person. Um, when did you first decide that you wanted to write cookbooks?
1: I've been buying cookbooks since I was a kid. Uh-huh. I think I bought my first one at Curdeli on one of the trips. And, okay, um, and that was how I taught myself to cook. Right, um, I've been cooking since I was a kid. We, we didn't really have anything interesting for cookies, and so I would make bread when I was ten or eleven. But I love to write. Love to cook. Cookbook writing a cookbook was a natural idea, and originally I thought I would be, you know, doing a my food like, uh, you know, California with French and Italian, and you know, all of the food that we cook, and have it translated into Japanese. And that would be the easiest entree into the mar- the cookbook market. And then later, right? I'd never seen a book like Japanese farm food. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like a. I wanted to write the food that we ate, right? And a lot of it's my husband's food, and some of it's my friend's food, and some of it's my food. And so to that end, I mean, my husband was the Japanese cook. And no, I did not learn from my mother-in-law because she was not actually a great cook. I began cooking Japanese food when I was first there. And then all of a sudden I realized, and I was having dinner parties, I realized, why am I cooking for my Japanese friends Japanese food? This is a crazy <laughs> idea. They want Western. <laughs> so I, but some people, David Libubus, um, uh-huh. said, gave me as an example if you live on a organic farm in Japan. You should write a book about the best hundred country recipes. I had not made Japanese nikujaga at that point, one of the simple dishes because yeah. it was my husband's thing. So I just say, okay, hey, 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 on the fly, how do you make nikujaga? Okay, and you just use hand movements. This much meat, this much uh, onions, this many, you know, and then, um, and glug, glug, glug soy sauce, put some ginger in, cook it a little bit like this. Anyway, the first, first off the, the recipes were perfect and delicious and more yeah. delicious than my husband so
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: well. so I discovered that I i mean I, I felt confident that I was skilled skill at writing recipes. And sure
0: and your husband is a farmer yeah and and that was sort of the basis then living on the farm learning the, the food um, that your husband was cooking and the others were cooking for your first book Japanese farm food mm-hmm. and then your second book is preserving the Japanese way where did the inspiration for that book come from?
1: Well you know the world was already getting going gaga for pickles and preserving and um i had put some in the first book and realized that this was a great subject for the next book and also i wanted to talk about the artisans the people who are making the miso or making the salt and um each book i thought about doing it seasonally but it's quite difficult in the end i did not right because carrots are season all year round so um my books kind of um they're a progression of where my life is at a certain moment. So hmm. I was writing a lot in Japanese farm food about how we had gotten to that point. Right. And then the next was I felt some responsibility. I was doing more TV. I was traveling around more. Um, it all sort of coincided at the same time. Right. And so I was introducing these artists and all makers to the Japanese public because they don't necessarily know about it. And because I had, uh, I've been in Japan for a long time and I have a, uh, fresh look on it and I can, be, I, right. I, I, I was very excited about these things. The long-term foreigners are sort of a thing in Japan now that they, they are trusted people who can give Japanese a second look at their country things they might take for granted or not even notice sure. so it's a big responsibility and yeah. um, I continue to do that
0: so this is your third English cookbook then you've written a couple of Japanese cookbooks who's your audience who are you mostly writing for it
1: I write thinking that they're going to use the book in Japan uh, but of course I mean it's a foreign publisher so right it's calibrated to be used all over the world and the thing is people shouldn't fuss about oh I don't have yoga or I don't have X or Y just substitute hey I live in japan and i cook paula wolf stuff all the time yeah i never have celery except for i go to the supermarket and no, i'm not going to go to the supermarket sure so celery you know we can get it make once a year maybe and it's standard standard in so many western recipes right but yeah just do that you know right. put more carrots and onions in you know so like all over the world japanese are cooking less and less
2: mm. and yeah. so
1: i and i think it's because people are intimidated Think that, oh, I can't make dashi or I can't make this. I can't shave the katsubushi And I'm an incredibly imperfect person. And I don't say you have to make the most perfect, you know, rolled tamago, uh, dashimaki right. tamago. You know, you can still make it and it's going to be a little bit, you know, loose or wobbly or sure. not straight. But if you use good eggs, good soy sauce, good meating, it's going to be delicious. So just go for it and practice. Right. And same thing with the sharpening your knives, shaving katsubushi. Imperfection is okay.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a a common misconception for a lot of foreigners about Japanese cooking is it is a simple cooking often, but I think there's an intimidation that it's very technical sometimes because it's so simple. How do you combat sort of those perceptions when you're writing a book like this?
1: You know, I visualize when I I write the recipes first, Mm -hmm. and then I test them after. The recipes that are were not recipes, I just imagined the proportions and of course I write at them in, in grams and, and right. first, and then I come back and put in the imperial, but there's relationships between the, so soy sauce and miso are, are I decided were two, mm-hmm. two to one to meeting. Okay. And the meeting mirroring softens the salt. It okay. mitigates the salt. Right. Or, you know, I, I, I decided a general rule of thumb for some of these relationships. So I, I visualize it. I walk you through the steps. And, um, I think in that way, my recipes are easy to follow. A lot of people say that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but when people ask what recipes should they start with, um, I always say, and I'll, in, in. Uh, I don't know, but the preserving books, uh, I say something different, but the vegetable dishes, because I love vegetables so much. And there's so many vegetables in yeah. this book. It's very vegetable centric. The, the Aemono chapter, that's dress things. And then the Zensai are little bites. Um, those are really great ch- places to start because you could, you know, slurp those into any sort of, um, Western menu even. And sure. Japanese food is very, um, insertable. And very um, dem- insertable to any menu and very democratic in that way. Yeah. And it, it's something that I didn't quite feel comfortable with in the beginning.
0: You have a mnemonic that you noted in the book for remembering the main flavorings, which I'm afraid I'd butcher if I tried to to say it. The funny
1: thing <laughs> is I did an interview um, a, a week ago in San Francisco uh-huh. and I, I did flub bl- it okay. because I was really <laughs> well, jet-like, we'll but no, it, no, okay. okay. <laughs> A-I-U-E-O is uh-huh. the vowels and then right. S-A-S-I-S-U-S-E-S-O-U.
0: Okay, is the demonic? Oh, that's a great way to remember yeah. it. Okay, just so, like the vowels.
1: Yeah, so um, yeah, similar to, to, to um, Spanish. Okay, so sa is sato, uh-huh. uh, which is sugar, but in and means the sweet. So in my case, I use meeting. I almost never use sugar. Se is um, the uh, I think it's seju, uh, the old word for soy sauce. I might have okay. gotten that wrong, but <laughs> I haven't, haven't memorized everything. But <laughs> sure. Um, so that's soy sauce. Se si, she she is shio. Salt. Uh-huh. Salt, say, she, said right, This is a, i, u, a, u. U. is vinegar. Right. And then uh, so is miso. Yes. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, and those are the, you say, the only essential ingredients you need. Well, so,
1: yeah, sure. classically, that's what we say. Classically, yeah.
0: right. Yeah. We'll be right back with more of our conversation with Nancy Singleton Hotchishu. Now, if you hear some commotion during today's interview, uh, don't fret. That's because Nancy was actually busy making onigiri, Japanese rice balls, during some of our breaks. She brought the rice from her farm and was bringing some of that Japanese hospitality to folks attending her book events. We're talking with Nancy about her latest work, Japan the Cookbook, which is a deep exploration into the culinary history of Japan, particularly during the 1970s and 1980s. The recipes here include everything from homemade dashi, which of course is the base of much of Japanese cooking, to homemade tofu, to crispy green beans and a sesame miso, or ginger pork and mustard green soup. Now, Nancy wrote, it's really important to try and understand the key point of the recipe, so not to lose the heart or soul of where it came from. And that really shines through here, Nancy's commitment to preserving Japanese culinary traditions and recipes, And especially as we talk with Nancy about the influences and the sources that she turned to while building this collection, I think we see that really clearly. Now, in addition to the hundreds of recipes here, I love the parts of this book that share a bit about Japanese culture with us, too. One example is Nancy's explanation of the term sakusaku, which she notes is the sound made when you bite into crunchy but light-battered dishes, perhaps like a summer vegetable tempura or leek fritters. Now before we jump back in, I want to remind you that Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen. The Civic Kitchen is the recreational cooking school that offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks in San Francisco's Mission District. We love the Civic Kitchen's open, airy, welcoming space. Really, it's excellent for learning different techniques, different cuisines, and styles from their staff, of expert chefs. And of course, you've likely seen their wonderful cookbook library, which is the backdrop for all of our Salt and Spine interviews. Now don't miss the Civic Kitchen's upcoming classes on topics like pork butchery and sausage making or basic knife skills. You can find a list of all the Civic Kitchen's classes and sign up at civickitchensf.com. Now back to our conversation with Nancy Singleton-Hachishu. Are there other um, key ingredients or sort of unique staples to Japanese cooking that you think are not yet appreciated on a global scale. Like sesame. there's a lot of Sesame. Okay. Sesame
1: is this book has so much sesame in it.
0: Yeah. And why it- do you think that is? That it's underappreciated.
1: Well, first of all, you have really crappy sesame here. Right. Sorry to say, but yeah, and um, you're talking
0: about seeds or oil or both.
1: S- seeds, oils, yeah. There's no paste in the bu- this book, but um, I met this guy uh, Takahiro Wada. He has a company in Osaka, Wada mm-hmm. This is the best sesame in the world. I am okay. telling you, it's life changing. Okay. And I was very skeptical. Oh, we sure. have, I don't need this fancy <laughs> sesame, you know, but it, it's amazing. And we've gone to, I've done events around and, and the in-house sesame people have is basically rancid, very poor quality, but he has white black and gold sesame seeds Uh and um, they were already in so much of the food in in this book in the recipes I was making but then I've been using them a lot Um, and uh, the thing is the quality is so high but the quality in Japan has gone way down too so he's a very special sesame he's a sesame roaster. There's no more Japanese sesame to to speak of. Yeah. He buys from three different countries, and he, so we all know about roasting, uh-huh. how important it is for the coffee. And I also bring uh, roasted barley, organic barley, and the sesame is the same. So th- he's got contract farmers uh, in three different countries. But then he, his father is the roaster, and his wife will take over. That's, okay, and I write about him in the book because it's truly. I mean, essential.
0: Yeah. And it's. I think it's very helpful, too, that you include a glossary at the end of um, some of the ingredients that you're using here, and also recommendations on where to source them from specific places in the US to just like general guidance on where you can find things. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing I thought was interesting is you note sancho pepper, too, in your glossary, and you note that there's a a risk of production, that that new generations of folks aren't taking over the sancho, and sancho is a a pepper um, that's, I think, native to Japan.
1: There are two native seasonings... Uh, flavoring, sorry. There are two native flavorings that have been used for thousands of years uh-huh. and that's sancho
0: uh-huh.
1: and yuzu. There's many others but these are old, old native seasonings, uh, right. f- flavorings, sorry. And um, the um, sancho is grown in Wakayama prefecture that's uh, where the, the oldest, I think, makers of soy sauce and it's a kind of the uh, heart of Japanese food in some way, if you can say that. But um, the sancho is grown um on, uh, hillsides. And so, um, and it's hard work to gather the berries and, um, old people are doing the work. Um, but then, um, young and, and young people are not wanting to do it because obviously there's no, not a lot of money in it. Right. And so literally it could just be gone. Sesame, Japanese sesame is gone. And, and so, but the, this is a native se- flavoring that's been used for I mean, thousands of years. And right. And that's just, um, yeah, I I, I hope it doesn't happen. And, and yeah. there are some of us who are talking about it. It's it's known in some circles, and there's some media people who are trying to do something to sure. to, to, shine a light on that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a very unique spice, yeah. a very unique pepper. I actually just, um, I think I may have had it before, but I just came back from Japan and had a bit of it. And it's interesting that you know Sancho and Yuzu are sort of the two um finishing touches that have been a staple in japanese cuisine because yuzu has sort of had its moment at least in the u.s but i haven't really seen sancho have Mm -hmm. its moment quite yet um to the degree that yuzu did yuzu did at least yeah
1: Um, well um also um excellent japanese yuzu is not easily put your finger on right um and uh i mean there are some people bringing it in it's very special
0: yeah, it is. Um now in Japan the cookbook is your audience mostly home cooks?
1: Uh no, not at all. In, in fact, I was uh, uh, all of my books are um named by many chefs as being their constants in the kitchen and mm. and so and I was surprised about that with Japanese farm food for instance. Um and and in that case they were looking at some basic ideas that I I don't uh it up and so sure. they get some basic idea at the heart of this technique or this dish and then they do what they want with it in right. this book um i've been doing uh, dinners collaboration dinners with various restaurants and chefs and my first recommendation is um, i'm pretty flexible but I, my first recommendation is i think you'll find this food really exciting and very restaurant um, friendly and so yeah um consider doing it by by the book sure you know and not a riff off and um pretty much we've been doing that yeah. Yeah.
0: That's great. And you also um, chose to include some recipes from chefs across the globe well, in that's, this cookbook.
1: Yeah, that's not my choice. That's part okay. of the Fiden idea. Uh-huh. And so some of those chefs um, were ones that I contacted, and some of them were ones that Fiden contacted with my OK. Sure. Um, but those are – it's a section that, like, I did not test the recipes. They're not – have, they don't have anything to do with me except for some of them I recommended. But it's a thing in all this country books.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a nice little touch yeah, to add yeah, a few other yeah. voices and perspectives right, 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 too. Right, yeah. Um, so this is Japan the Cookbook. Wonderful, um, beautiful new cookbook with the bamboo-esque cover. Um, and, and what's next for you then, Nancy? You noted that there's a lot of work that you did in producing this book that, that maybe has a life somewhere else.
1: I have a contract with Hardy Grant in Australia and Food Artisans of Japan will come out, come out at the fall of 2019.
0: 2019. As long as I
1: deliver it. Yes.
0: (laughs) Great. Well, we can't we can't wait for that. We're looking forward to that. And thank you so much for making this great cookbook. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Nancy. Thank you. What a fascinating conversation. Now let's head over to Omnivore Books, where our friend Celia Sack joins us for From the Vault, the part of our show where we look at a work from her collection of vintage or interesting books. Hi, Celia. How are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you doing? Great. So we just talked to Nancy Singleton-Hachishu about her latest book, Japan, The Cookbook. Uh, and I'm hoping you have something to share from your vault with us today.
2: Oh, well, actually, what I want to share are her two past books, because she awesome. is a go-to. I mean, one of the problems with the Japan, the cookbook, the Fiden didn't nearly plan to print as many as they were going to need, because, okay. and they keep running out of them, uh, because she is so popular and so well-respected. She wrote Japanese farm food food and also preserving the japanese way okay. um both of them tell you you know how to start from scratch making tofu making preserves everything and They're just perfect. So, uh, you know, I feel like uh, she deserves a lot of kudos for doing some beautiful books in the past, and I'm so glad that she's moving on and doing more.
0: Yeah, that's really awesome. So, Japanese farm food and preserving the Japanese way are her first two English books. Yep,
2: and preserving the Japanese way is one of the only books out there about Japanese preserving, and certainly the most comprehensive.
0: Yeah, well, awesome. I love Japanese pickles and all types of pickles. So that's a wonderful recommendation. Thank you so much my pleasure and that's our show for today thanks so much for listening head to our website saltandspine.com to hear nancy reading an excerpt from japan the cookbook and for exclusive recipes and a chance to win a copy of japan the cookbook in our weekly giveaway if you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on salt and spine and i hope you do please remember to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. Our program today was produced by Allison Sullivan and myself, thanks to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen Cooking School team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. Our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love.